Welcome to the Topeka First podcast. We are one church with several locations. Our mission is to reach our community with the message of Jesus. If you would like to give to support this podcast and the ministries of our church, please visit topekafirst.com giving. Enjoy the podcast. So today we're talking about King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah is in a really interesting place in the history of Israel. So King Hezekiah is the king of the southern king of Ju- kingdom of Judah, and there's the northern king of Israel. And so the northern kingdom of Israel during the early part of his reign is attacked by the country of Assyria. Assyria comes in, conquers the land, and takes them off into captivity, leaving just one kingdom. That would be the southern kingdom of Judah. So all this is happening in the life of Hezekiah, and he's able to see what's going on in the world around him. He's going, okay, the Assyrians up here are taking over Israel, and they might be getting a little greedy and want to come from my country too. And so he's, he's seeing all this happen, all this play out, and then it comes down through, and what he thinks is going to happen happens. And, and the Assyrians come and attack the fortified cities and all these towns around Jerusalem and conquer them. And then they come to Jerusalem with their mighty army. And so they come, and the, the Assyrian king is very bold in his um, approach to all these other countries. He's, he's a little bit cocky. He's a little bit cocky. And so he walks, uh, he sends the Assyrian chief of staff to these people. And in verse 19 of 2 Kings chapter 18, it says this. Then the Assyrian king's chief of staff told them to give this message to Hezekiah. This is what the great king of Assyria says. What are you trusting in that makes you so confident? Do you think that mere words can substitute for military skill and strength? Who are you counting on that you have rebelled against me? On Egypt, if you lean on Egypt It will be like a reed that splinters beneath your weight and pierces your hand. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is completely unreliable. But perhaps you will say to me, we're trusting in the Lord our God. But isn't he the one who was insulted by Hezekiah? Didn't Hezekiah tear down his shrines and altars and make everyone in Judah and Jerusalem worship only at the altar in Jerusalem? So I'm going to break it up right there. There's, there's a moment where he's like, doesn't Hezekiah take, tear down all the shrines and altars dedicated to your God? Well, the Assyrians um, aren't super knowledgeable of the God of Israel. They, they don't really know what's going on. They're not experts in the scriptures because they're a foreign country and they really don't care. But every other nation they've conquered, their gods are all images. Their gods are all wood and stone. And so there's this moment that Hezekiah, he, he sees this, this thing happen. And in verse 4 of that chapter, he, he, it says this. He said, he removed the pagan shrines, smashed the sacred pillars, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke up the bronze servant that Moses had made because the people of Israel had been offering sacrifices to it. And so all what he does is he goes, hey, these high places up here, these, these places where they, we've got these altars to gods that are not real, they're, they're not true, and we're worshiping these false gods, I'm taking them down. And so what Hezekiah does out of obedience to God, he, he takes all this stuff down, but then the outsider looks and goes, well, he tore down all of God's shrines and altars. Well, the God's not going to be with him now because he's torn this down. So this Assyrian is misunderstood in what Hezekiah is doing. 
And then it says this, I tell you what, strike a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can find that many men to ride on them. With your tiny army, how can you think of challenging even the weakest contingent of my master's troops, even with the help of Egypt, Egypt's chariots and charioteers? What more do you think we have invaded your land without the Lord's direction? And the Lord himself told us to attack this land and destroy it. So how many of you know of the, the storytelling device uh, called an unreliable narrator? Anyway, it's, it's a device that people use in storytelling to kind of throw you off. Um, if you've ever seen, I, I think I did this last week, but if you've ever seen The Dark Knight, the Joker changes his story of how he gets his scars every time. He's an unreliable narrator. We can't trust what he's saying. Well, the Assyrian chief of staff is this way as well. He's saying that the Lord sent him to destroy the land, but we see that later in the chapter, and there's all this exposition with, with Isaiah that tells us that that's not true. The Assyrians are not sent to destroy Judah. They were sent to destroy Israel, however. And you see that in the idols as well. But when we look at this scenario, we see kind of some parallels to our own lives. How many of you, in hard times, your mind starts overworking? Anybody? Anybody do that where they like start thinking about all the things that are wrong? Everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong because everyone's out to get me, right? Well, we can like go through this list and see scenarios that we've used in our own life over and over again. So, it, you know, when we're in hard times... We, we see in the first part of that, that section, it goes, um, what are you trusting in that makes you so confident? Uh, mere words can't substitute for military skill and strength. But then we, 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 we see that in our own lives. We, we're not good enough. We, we can't, I, I'm not good enough to do that. I can't actually do this. I'm, I'm substituting what I'm good at for what I'm not good at. I'm, I'm substituting what God has poured into my life and saying, hey, I know God's given me this, but I should really trust in this if I want to succeed. We do that, and then, and then it, he goes on and says, who are you trusting in, Egypt? And we, and we think when we're in hard times, oh, our friends, are, they're just nowhere to be found. They're not around us. They're not with us. I'm all alone. There's nobody here that's willing to help me. They're unreliable. They're not, they're not helpful. Then we go on, and we, 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 we see that with the idols that God may have seen us as screwing something up or, or taking something that wasn't actually wrong, but we've built it up as being wrong in our heads. Um, we see this in the New Testament. We see like when, when Jesus heals somebody with a disability, a lot of the people in the, in the country say to him, whose sin was it? Was it his sin or his father's sin that caused this? And Jesus says, no, it's neither of those. It's just, it's happened and I'm here to heal. And so people were taking these things and going, oh, this is actually a non-sin issue, and we're making it a sin issue. And sometimes we do that in our own life. We go, we've been misinformed on what it is to be righteous, and we, we are hurting ourselves because we're, we're, we're killing ourselves over some small non-sin issue that we've made it and gone, oh, I've done this, so God couldn't be on my side. I've done this, so God couldn't be on my side. We have, to, we have to watch out for that. We've got to move away from that. And then the last thing the Assyrian chief of staff says is that God himself sent these people to kill us. And we do that sometimes, don't we? We go, 
well, I deserve it, right? I mean, God's punishing me. It's my own fault. It's, and, and we get it stuck in this trap where we, we, we stick with something and we, we think that any mistake or any sin that we've committed is, is justifiable in that God is just wiping us out. Well, God could never use me again, so all this is because I've messed up. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes our sins do cause natural reactions in the world. I think I was reading through something uh, a while back, and, and it, was, it was talking about, it seems like our sin isn't often punished by God. It's punished by the natural consequences of our own sin. That God, a lot of times, just lets the outcome of our sin happen, and when we sin and we, we lose sight of it, we, we then have to pay the natural consequences of our sin. And very rarely is God actually punishing us. It's, it's usually the natural consequences of our own sin. And we, we have to be on guard for these things in our lives. But after that, the Assyrian chief of staff, he, he starts shouting in Hebrew at the walls. He starts shouting in the language they can understand because he wants them to know what's going on. He wants them to be afraid. He wants them to fear. He keeps telling them that if they, they need to, this, this false promise of surrender will bring help and safety. And it says this, don't listen to Hezekiah when he tries to mislead you by saying the Lord will rescue us. That's the truth. The Lord will rescue them. But have the gods of all or any other nations ever saved them from the king of Assyria? Have any other gods saved them from the king of Assyria? But I think we'll jump back one verse because I wanted to show you this one line that the messenger says that I think is so vital to the outcome of, of these people. He says this, Then I will arrange to take you to another land like this one, a land with, of grain and new wine, bread and vineyards, olive groves and honey. Choose life instead of death. The Assyrian messenger is giving them a sales pitch. That's wrong. Any of you ever bought a used car? Any of you know where I'm going with this? There's this sales pitch, and it's, it's the greatest vehicle that has ever graced the face of the earth, right? Like, it's, I know it's got 100,000 miles on it, but it is running, it's purring. It's purring, just this most beautiful car. It runs so perfectly. Don't worry. If you buy this car, it's going to be just fine. It won't break down on you next week. That's, that's basically what the, the Assyrian chief of staff is. He's a used car salesman that says, hey, we've got olive groves, and we've got grain, and we've got bread, and we've got olive oil, and we've got all this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stuff, and it'll be all yours if you just surrender and become one of the captives, just like all the other nations that they've conquered already. It's not like they didn't have a track record and we didn't know what was going to happen here. Their neighbors to the north had just, just been captured. In that lifetime, they'd been captured. But I think it's interesting that he says, choose life instead of death. Because he's offering death instead of life. By surrendering, by giving in to the Assyrians, they are choosing death. They're choosing sin over God and life. 
And the, the sales pitch is God won't take care of you. God isn't strong enough to keep us from destroying you because don't you know that all those other gods, they fell before us. They were burnt. But if the people try to trust these Assyrians, they're just going to end up like Israel in the north and they're going to be captured. And it's not unlike us. We choose these lesser things. We choose to trust the used car salesman. We choose to trust these people that are offering us joy that they can't sustain. And there's this amazing quote from C.S. Lewis that I love, and I'm sure some of you have heard it before. It says this, it would seem that our Lord that God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child, we want to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased. Sometimes we think the immediate things, the immediate gratification that we get from, from whatever it is that holds us is so, more, so much more valuable than what God actually offers. God offers so much more. He offers us life. He, he offers us value. We think these little things are more valuable than the offer of the source of life himself. So it's simple. Don't trust the sales pitch. It's not good. It's not helpful. Don't trust it. And Hezekiah doesn't. The Assyrians, they, they talk some trash a little bit more. But then Hezekiah seeks the Lord, and he does something so important that we should do always. Whenever we're up against a, an unthinkable task that we don't know that we're going to be able to get through, that we don't know if it's even possible that we can succeed in this scenario, we need to do what Hezekiah does, and that is seek the Lord. And he has this beautiful moment in his prayer, and it says this, It is true, Lord, the kings of Assyria have destroyed all these nations. And they have thrown the gods of these nations into the fire and burned them. But of course, the Assyrians could destroy them. They were not gods at all. Only idols of wood and stone shaped by human hands. Now, O Lord, our God, rescue us from his power. Then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, God. We've got to move to this space where we realize that all the little things in our life, the things that aren't, aren't helpful, the things that are, that are smaller, the things that catch us in sin, the things that hold us, the things that we're addicted to or, or we love too much, we love more than God, are just wooden and stone idols that can be burned. Because the true God will always win. I think it was so interesting just looking at this culture of like the idols, the idols that represented gods. Because the Israelites don't make an idol of the Lord. The Lord is, has no image made by man. We are the image of the invisible God. It says we're made in the image of God. 
And it's interesting that humans make their gods in their image, where God makes humans in his image. He elevates his creation. We diminish it. We diminish it. We need to cast aside our idols and let them burn to the ground. This would be the one time where the, oh, God, would work. Dang it. Um, how many of you know the song, oh, God, or one, oh, God, one God, one God? They're, it's only like two letters different. One God. Uh, it has that weird bridge that's like, burn them all down. They're, it's talking about idols. It's not about people. We're not burning any humans. No humans are being burnt, okay? But burn them all down, the idols, these false gods. I don't know, that popped in my head, Aaron. I'm sorry. That was, we always joke about that song. Um, but here's the difference. Hezekiah knows we're talking about a living God. He knows that his God is true and that he can literally talk to him because that God will talk back. And we see through the prophet Isaiah that the prophet Isaiah then communicates what God is saying. And, and God talks some trash that he can absolutely back up. Because the Assyrian king is talking trash on a God who can hear it. And he pokes the bear. He pokes the bear. It's like if anybody besides Golden State would ever say that LeBron can't beat him, LeBron's going to beat him, except for Golden State, because Golden State is absurd. I mean, sweeping the NBA Finals with the second best player of all time, you're welcome, all MJ fans, because it's true. I was, I was looking at you, Sean. I've seen your posts on Facebook. MJ is better than LeBron. Just, that's just a fact. We're all going to, we could literally just put it at the end of the Bible. It's scripture, okay? But the Bible says you're not supposed to do that, so we're not actually going to do that. It was just a metaphorical joke. We don't add to scripture, and we don't take away from scripture. It's in there. All right, so... When we encounter the real God for the first time, our whole worldview has to change. It has to take shape around this idea of a God who actually lives and actually hears and actually knows us. We have to shape our minds and go, oh, we are not the center of the universe anymore. God is, and I have to live my life following after him. Suddenly, some of the things that seemed like rituals like maybe singing songs on a Sunday morning, when we encounter God, we realize that these are prayers sung of praise and adoration of a king who is good and who hears us. Sometimes these rituals, we, from the outside, they look like nothing. They look like singing to a screen on a Sunday morning. But for those of us who know that the God of the universe is real, it's singing praise to our creator. And the Assyrians are about to find out the hard way, the very hard way, that the God of Judah is very much alive and well. And it says this in, in chapter 19, verse 35. That night, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. Then King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp, and he returned to his own land. He went home to his capital city of Nineveh. 
and stay there, which you'll read about later in Jonah. But that king also met another fate. We don't, I don't throw it in here to read the scripture, but he meets another fate. He, he goes back home and a couple of his sons assassinate him and his reign ends. He went up against the God of Israel. He gets destroyed from a military standpoint and then his own sons kill him. And this king who was boasting, this king who sent his messenger out, and you can see in the messenger's even wording, he says, the great king of Assyria, and then he doesn't give Hezekiah a title. He just says Hezekiah, as if Hezekiah were another man, as if Hezekiah wasn't the king of the land of the living God. And this boasts and these, these arrogance his arrogance lead to his demise because his tactics work when no God represents the, the people he conquered. His tactics work when, when there's nobody actually fighting against him, when his military success is all by itself the only thing that decides the war. It's so important that we remember who Hezekiah was talking to. He wasn't talking to an idol of wood or stone, but he was talking to the living God who loves his people. In the New Testament, Paul um, is, is crafting these arguments, and, and, and he, as he writes these books, he's trying to tell us something. And initially in the New Testament, the people of, uh, of Israel, the Jewish people, thought that they were the chosen people of God by birthright. And they were but once we see, once Jesus comes, Paul redefines it. He goes, the people who believe in Jesus as their Savior become the children of God, become the people of God. Birth does not make you a child of God. Belief in the Savior and the acceptance of Jesus is what makes you a child of God. And so know this, the same God who protects the kingdom of Judah, the, who protects Jerusalem from the 185,000 Assyrian soldiers plus the ones that survive, is the same God who is your people. He's, you are the people of God. When you, when you look at Jesus and you say, Jesus, I know what you did for me on the cross. I know what you've done. I've seen that you're real. I see that you're not wood and stone, but you are a God who loves and cares about me. That I become your people. How much better do you feel walking through life knowing that God's got your back? That God's got your back. We're not worried about what the Assyrians have or what our neighbors have or what, what success is coming to other people because we know that God has got our back. We know that God's right with us, that we know that when we hold him in the right standing, that when we know that we, we have a God who is above us, who reigns above us, we don't try to take his place, that he is always with us. He's always with us. And the band's going to come up, and I, I encourage you this morning, spend some time worshiping. Don't, don't be in a hurry to exit. Just like Zuzu spoke out before we sang, what a beautiful name. 
know that these songs are, are prayers of the goodness of God and that when we're actually praying these out, we can take a moment and listen. We don't have to sing in every moment and go, God, what are you trying to speak to me here? What are you trying to say? What idol have I put in the way of you? What idol do I need to tear down? What idol do I need to remove from my life? So that we know that the God of the universe is with us. He's here with us. What do we need to hear from God? Listen, listen for his voice. If you've ever been in a moment where you, if you've never been in a moment where you've ever heard from God, if you don't know what his voice sounds like, know that it generally doesn't sound like you. It's these moments of quiet and listening and going, God, I just need your voice. I need to hear you. And I found that when, when I hear God most clearly is generally when I'm the most uncomfortable with what he's saying. God generally doesn't correct us on things we're already doing right. But it's those moments that says, God, I hear you pushing me outside of myself. I hear you saying something that isn't what I want, but I know is good and is right. God, this morning I want to I pray that your voice would be clear. That we would hear you. That we would know that you are speaking. God, we want an encounter with the living God, with you, today. I don't want a counterfeit. I want the real Jesus. I do not want a faith of comfort. I want a faith that is good and that is right. God, push me outside of myself. Push me closer to you. As we're about to sing, we want you to have it all, God. Every part. And let us hear you as you say it. Let us hear you as you speak it. God, where have we missed it? Where have we, we, we stepped outside of what you want? Where have we gone astray? Because you are good. And we don't want our weak desires to, to make us settle for less than what you have. God, you can have it all. We want to encounter you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.